Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us with our first uh, colloquium presentation for the spring 2013 semester. Uh, my name is Dr. Bill Fisher. I'm on the faculty of the School of Library and Information Science at San Jose State. And we are pleased to have with us, um, as the uh, slide you're looking at uh, indicates, uh, Philip Gust who, in addition to being the current president of the Silicon Valley chapter of SLA, which is the SLA chapter local to uh, San Jose State, uh, Phil also works with the LOCKS program at Stanford. And LOCKS stands for Lots of Copies, Keep Stuff Safe. And he'll be discussing uh, what's going on with that particular program in regards to digital preservation. Uh, and he has been part of the LOCKS program for quite some time and uh, has uh, been instrumental in the program as it is now functioning. So I'm going to turn things over to Phil uh, in just a second. Uh, we will have uh, an opportunity for questions and answers. Um, when Phil's presentation is, is finished. And so uh, at this point, let me turn things over to Phil. Take it away. Well, good afternoon, and thank you for joining me on this webinar today. I'm going to be talking to you uh, about digital preservation and its relationship to librarians and library users. Um, I'm going to be giving you some grounding on things you should think about, issues in digital preservation, more than the underlying technologies, which is a different talk which I'd be happy to come back and present to you at a different time. But I'd like to start out by um, putting up the main title slide, if I may. There it is. Um, as Bill said, I'm the president of the Silicon Valley chapter of the Special Libraries Association. And um, I'm happy to uh, thank our hosts, the San Jose State University School of Library and Information Sciences, for putting this webinar on. And with that, I'm going to turn off my webcam, because I understand that will make the recording much smaller. And I will move into the presentation itself. So I'd like to say just a couple of words about the Special Libraries Association. Um, SLA is a professional organization for information professionals working in various special purpose libraries, such as academic, corporate, science, engineering, legal, pharmaceutical, medical, government, military, and a lot of others. The Silicon Valley chapter welcomes working professionals and students who are interested in careers in special libraries. We have a number of professional development, mentoring, career opportunities, and a lot of fun events throughout the year. Um, if you'd like some information about the Silicon Valley chapter of SLA, here's the website, and you can take a look at that. So with that, I will move into the talk itself. Today's presentation is going to cover these topics. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about why preservation is important, what does it mean, um, some different paths to digital preservation, how much digital preservation costs, um, six threats to long-term digital preservation as far as libraries <coughs> and library users are concerned, 
um, some ways that you can make preserved digital content available to library users, and how to ensure long-term preservation of a library's digital content. So let me start out with the first question. Um, why is digital preservation important to libraries and users? Well, basically, librarians and library users understand the traditional model of journals and books and audio and video on the shelf. For digital, it's not quite so easy. Um, relying on publishers for long-term access to their content is not a good idea for a number of reasons, which I'll get into. Um, really, um, collecting and preserving digital content is a critical role for libraries um, to ensure long-term access for their users. And in fact, failure to collect and preserve digital content for long-term jeopardizes the libraries one of their main roles, which is to build collections. So let me talk a little bit about um, what it means to preserve digital content, because there are essentially three aspects. First of all, libraries have to take possession of digital content, having it in someone else's hands and um, at, their, at the mercy, essentially, of another agency. Um, is a really bad idea if what you're trying to do is build collections. The three aspects that I think are important for digital preservation is guaranteed long-term retention of the digital content that you own. The second is that however you retain that content, it must be in substantially the same form as the original. That is to say, you could do what Project Gutenberg does and just scrape the text. And that's an acceptable, marginally acceptable form. But really, digital preservation is about preserving the experience that end users had when they actually looked at the digital content on the publisher site. And the third aspect, and perhaps the most important and overlooked, is immediate access when the original content is unavailable. You can preserve digital content. You can lock it away in a safe. But unless you can make it available as a failover when the content becomes unavailable from its original source, you don't really have preservation. And I think that that's a really important point to take away. And I'll, I'll talk about that again at the end. So if we think about paths to digital preservation, there's really a spectrum of paths. And these lay out the four main ones, as far as I can tell. Um, one is you can rely on continued access through the publisher. And I said, this is not a good idea because publishers go out of business. Your library might have to cancel the subscription. And you no longer have access to that. For a number of reasons, relying solely on publishers for long-term digital preservation is a non-starter for libraries. You could try doing local backups of uh, copies yourself. You could spider the publisher's websites. Um, some publishers will send you CDs of their pre-publication material. It's essentially XML files, PDF files um, on DVDs or CDs. And you could, you could retain those, but they're really not in form that um, you can present to the users or make available. The, the third one is you could outsource digital preservation to an external digital preservation agency. And there are several, and I'll talk about at least one of them during the course of this talk. Um, and there are some advantages to doing that. And the, the last one, the fourth one, is you could implement a digital preservation system yourself. And I'll talk a little bit about 
how you do that and what that entails as well. But um, this slide represents the subject I was just talking about, which is um, what does it mean to preserve digital content? And again, you can see that the three aspects, guaranteeing long-term retention, um, retaining content in substantially the same form as the original, and immediate access when the original is unavailable are the ones that I've called out here. I'm going to advance the slide now and see if this works. And talk about the first, the, the third of those. I think the first two that I talked about are rather straw man type of proposals. You could do them, but they're really not viable. The last two are really the most viable options. So what I'm going to do is to talk about the third one in that list, which is um, hiring an external preservation agency. Portico is the example I'll use, um, and there's their website, portico.org. Um, what they do is they provide preservation as a service. There's no hardware, no software setup. Um, you just sign up with Portico, and um, you can start preserving the content that's available through Portico that you have subscriptions to. Um, Essentially, the way they work is participating publishers supply raw content to the uh, preservation agency for long-term preservation, and they do it through FTP sites, a number of ways that they transmit it. <clears throat> the agency republishes raw content um, for users to view. Now, the content that the uh, preservation agency publishes does not match the content that you would see on the publisher's website because they're getting raw content from the publisher, PDF files, XML files, the thing that goes into publication platforms. And they, they make it look like something from the, from the uh, preservation agency. Um, all of the content from all of the publishers look alike as far as that's concerned. Um, Long-term preservation really relies on the fact that the agencies have replicated data centers. That is to say, they may have two or three data centers where all of the content is stored, and they're relying on a combination of backups and replication. For large amounts of data, and we're talking about hundreds of terabytes of data, backup is really not a good solution. So replicated data centers really are the only way that they can provide any type of long-term preservation. As far as costs go, agencies charge a library a setup fee based on the size of the collection that they want preserved. <clears throat> and the collection fee, the, the setup fee could be substantial. Um, and then once the library has reached an agreement with the preservation agency, um, they have to pay the preservation agency an annual subscription fee to, remain, to maintain access. Um, a couple issues with that. The fees can increase unexpectedly year to year, and we've seen that happen. Um, the library can lose access to all of their content if they can't pay a full fee each year. Now think about that. Libraries have to cut their budgets from time to time. They may not be able to pay either their full fee or they may not be able to afford it altogether. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, if that's the case, if your budget's cut, you lose and your users lose all access forever. The only way you can get it back is if you pay all of the fees for the period that you no longer uh, subscribed um, in arrears and then begin paying going forward. 
So this is the typical type of thing that uh, preservation agencies do. They have to make money. They have to stay in business. And uh, that's, that's essentially what they're up to. This picture illustrates schematically what I just talked about. In this case, the publisher uh, delivers raw content to the preservation agency. The preservation agency republishes the content, puts it in a data center. Um, a library user requests access. They check subscriptions. If the library doesn't have a subscription that's current, that denies access. Otherwise, they return um, not what the user would see on the publisher site, but the republished content as it was republished by the preservation agency. So what are the alternatives? Well, one alternative that I'm familiar with because I work at the organization um, is a locally operated preservation system. That is to say, you're not relying on a preservation agency to do it. The library itself becomes a preservation agency. Now, that sounds scary because you know, there's, it, there's a lot of things involved in setting that up, but it's actually a relatively simple process. Um, basically, the library sets up a computer system or it can hire space on a cloud instance and they can install the open source digital preservation software that, for instance, Lock supplies. You can download the software, install it, and run it anytime you like. Publishers allow digital preservation software like Locks to harvest and preserve the content directly from the publisher's website. That is to say, they don't deliver raw content to a Locks box in a library. The Locks box in the library because the library has access to the content on the publisher's website, can actually go out to the publisher's website, harvest the content, and preserve it locally. The library actually has possession. The preserved content is identical to what was on the publisher's website when the content was harvested and preserved. So when the user looks at it, it's exactly the way they saw it at that time. Long-term preservation isn't based on um, a, data, a data center replication. We take a slightly different approach, and there are several other uh, digital preservation systems that take other approaches as well. In our approach, each library has a locks box, and the hundreds of libraries that may have a given title, the locks boxes in their libraries talk to each other. And what they do is they periodically compare the content in their locks box versus the content in all the other locks boxes that have that same title. If the content compares, everything is good, and you know that you probably have exactly what the publisher gave you. If it doesn't, then there's a repair process that takes place among the locks boxes so that the content in the locks box that um, may have content missing or content that's not the same as everyone else, uh, can repair that content and become in sync with all the other libraries. All this happens automatically and behind the scenes. There's nothing that librarians have to do. This is an automatic process. There's no setup fee. This whole process relies on existing agreements between the library and the publisher. There is absolutely no locks agreement that a library has to sign, and there's no locks agreement that the publisher has to sign with respect to their content. 
if they have an if they have access to it through a subscription, and the publisher agrees to make it preservable, then they can preserve it. The library pays the organization that produces the software a small annual support fee to update the knowledge base that describes how to preserve a title and new uh, volumes and, and years of a title. Um, the fee is not based on the m number of titles that you preserved. It's a flat fee. Um, so the main point is that organizations like LOX who produce this software as open source are not for profit. The fees remain stable over many years. And second and most important, the library retains the preserved content even if they stop paying the fee to get access to new content. There's no, and there's no penalty to rejoin. So unlike when you have to stop paying a fee and you lose access to all content and you have to pay in arrears, in this case, um, you still have access to all the content that you had before. It's on your local locks box and you can make it available. And there's no penalty for rejoining, in which case you can catch up. So this is particularly good for libraries whose budgets can fluctuate from year to year. Also, the costs are substantially less. We're talking on the order of 1,000 to perhaps for a very, very large library, say Stanford, uh, $10,000 a year. So it's a very, very affordable thing. You're not paying for subscriptions to the content. You're paying for subscriptions to the knowledge base. So this picture illustrates that process. The publisher uh, puts out content on their website. It's harvested by the local digital preservation system, which preserves it to a digital repository. The library user requests the content from the digital preservation system, <coughs> and the digital preservation system returns it. And the other digital preservation systems that have the same content synchronize and repair automatically. So this is um, how LOX works, and um, it's a relatively simple system to set up. Um, there, are, there are obviously upfront uh, work that libraries have to do to set up a LOXPOX, um, a little bit of work setting up computers, um, some manual maintenance, but it's actually a very doable thing, and most libraries have somebody who can actually work with IT. Uh, type systems who are really able to do this kind of thing, we found. And we also provide support to those people. So let's talk about costs. Digital preservation is not free. Um, it's just like having to budget for the books that you have on your shelf. You have to budget for storage. You have to budget for maintenance, facilities costs, um, for your physical collection. And you have to do the same thing for your uh, digital collection as well. For outsourced preservation agents, um, there is a setup fee for content based on the size of the collection, and there is an ongoing fee, annual fee that you have to pay where you lose access to all content. And there's a possibility of unexpected fee increases. For local digital preservation systems, no setup fee. Um, the cost of the computer um, or cloud instance is really what you're dealing with and installing the digital preservation software. And really the cost for ongoing is the maintenance of the computer and or the cloud instance and the digital preservation software. The library retains permanent access to their content. So 
there are six threats really to long-term digital preservation that are important to libraries and I'll touch on all six of these now. First of all, publisher contracts. This is very important. When you negotiate a contract with a publisher, um, you need to negotiate that contract with digital preservation in mind. The most important thing you can do is to negotiate perpetual access, that is to say ownership of the content. That's critical because without ownership, you can't do digital preservation. Um, basically, our, my advice is do not accept term-based or rental access unless it's absolutely necessary. If you have to, look for alternative sources, but be very aware when you're negotiating contracts whether you're negotiating a rental agreement or an ownership agreement. Some publishers in the last year or two have begun offering both. They charge more for the ownership agreement, but in my opinion, if you have a choice between ownership and rental, for things that you tend, you tend to preserve for a long time, the things that you want to have on your shelf year after year, a rental agreement is well worth the additional incremental expense. The second threat, um, publishers can place restrictions on access by library users to their content. Um, a lot of them are just unaware of digital preservation issues and the access restrictions that they put in just get in the way. I would say that you should take time to educate your publishers on the importance to your library and users of digital preservation and things that they can do to make that easier for you. And again, always negotiate unlimited access for your within your institution. The third, issues with publishers' business models. Really, publishers rely on recurring revenue from replacement of physical media for their, for their books and journals, and they have the same model for the digital currently. That will change. Even short-term preservation of digital content by libraries is a threat to their business model. Um, if you look at the HarperCollins issue, for those of you who aren't aware of it, HarperCollins decided that providing perpetual access to content wasn't in their best interest, so they decided to put a licensing terms that essentially um, meant that the, public, the library had to repurchase the content after 26 uses. They said that it's not fair because for print content, um, print content wears out and they want to have the same wear out type of characteristic so that they can have a recurring revenue stream. Some libraries have gone along with that, some are not going along with that, and the jury is still out as to whether or not this is going to work. Harper and Collins is one of the few that do this. However, I will also tell you that some large publishers actually refuse to sell digital content to libraries at all. You'll have to decide how you deal with that, but um, if the content is important, you may be forced into paper. Um, finally, my advice is publishers are not bad guys. Publishers are our friends. They really are. Uh, without publishers, we're not in business. Look for ways to come up with win-win for libraries and publishers. There are ways of doing it. If you tell them what your concerns are and you listen to their concerns, you can do this. So my biggest advice is talk to, your, talk to your publishers, work with them. They're in business too and, and so are you. Your business is the librarians or the library users, their business is the libraries. Fourth, content corruption and repair. Um, you know, preserved digital content is not forever. It's subject to corruption and it's subject to deletion. 
um, accidental deletion or corruption because of disk network software errors, human errors. Covert corruption. This is a really interesting one most people don't think of. Unfriendly governments or corporations are an example. Um, hackers going into the system are another example. Remember Amazon's ability to delete owned content as a content supplier. It could happen, it's happened before, it could happen again, and not just from Amazon. It could happen in a lot of places. You need a digital content preservation system that can detect and repair both accidental and covert corruption and deletion. If you don't have a way of ensuring that that happens, you don't have long-term digital preservation, plain and simple. Fifth, dynamic publisher content. You know, a lot of, in, in the past, publisher content has remained relatively static. Once it's published, um, it looks the same from year to year. They may make corrections, but not really um, beyond that. Long-term digital preservation is relatively simple for, those co for that content. Publishers recently have begun creating dynamic content. Everything changes all the time per user. It changes over time. It changes for any number of reasons. And that really makes long-term digital preservation difficult. My advice to you is if you run into a publisher who has highly dynamic content that changes from user to user, that changes dynamically as you're looking at the screen, ask them what their plan is to help your library ensure for long-term digital preservation of their dynamic content. Their answer had better not be, trust us. The sixth and final threat that I can see is restrictions or failures of digital preservation agencies. You know, digital preservation agencies can and do place more restrictive rules on access to preserve content than the publishers do. And you need to be aware of this. You may have a set of restrictions that your publisher places, but because you are preserving your content with a digital preservation agency, you play by their rules ultimately. Many agencies are essentially rental models in disguise. That is to say, you stop paying, you stop having access. They're essentially not much better than relying on the publisher because if you have to stop paying, you lose all of the content. You don't have long-term long access. Finally, you know, digital preservation agencies can fail or they could be taken over. Business acquisitions happen all the time, especially in the publishing industry. That can impact your library users' access to preserve content too. Terms may change. They may make certain content no longer available, or they may bundle it. And finally, the thing to think about here is that data centers alone can't guard against long-term accidental or covert corruption or deletion of data. They just can't. You may have two or three data centers around the world, but if something happens to one, it can happen to all of them. So let me talk about um, ways that you can make preserved digital content available to users. You know, you can preserve digital content that you subscribe to, but unless you can make it available to users, first of all, that won't be of much use. But second of all, um, there's actually some real advantages to libraries making the preserved content directly available to users on a day-to-day -day basis.
Um, a couple of ways that you can actually do that. Link resolvers, which are ways that um, you can map bibliographic information to access uh, to publishers' data for anything from the title all the way down to an individual article. Um, are a great piece of software, and a lot of libraries have them. Um, they're integrated with their online public access catalogs, or OPACs. Um, the way they, those, those work, I'll show you in a minute, but basically um, the OPACs are tied into the link resolvers, and they make the digital content available once you've landed on a title page. The next one is Serial is another collection management system. This is a back-end function, but making your digital preservation system integrate with your serials management system means it's much easier to make sure that what's in your digital preservation system matches what you actually subscribe to. And finally, for your library users, citation management systems, which allow users to collect bibliographic references for research papers that they're working on. Um, can be well integrated with digital preservation systems as well so that they can gather citations from your preserved content as well as content from the publishers. And finally, there's advanced preservation capabilities that you can also make available to users. Not all digital preservation system agencies are doing these. LOX has been working on a number of these for quite some time and are, is moving forward with uh, initiatives in each of these areas. Indexing and searching preserved content for keywords, metadata, and things like that. Uh, providing knowledge management functions so that you can um, annotate uh, content. You can begin doing group-oriented operations with content. Um, or, in fact, you can find content that um, you didn't know relations existed. Um, you can actually find content that way. The semantic web type model is what I'm thinking of here. And finally, um, a digital preservation system gives you the rare opportunity to compare current and past versions of content that you've collected because sometimes looking at past versions can be very instructive to see what the state of the publisher's website and the content was like six months ago, a year ago, three years ago. The Wayback Machine at Internet Archive, for instance, provides that kind of access through, uh, for, for web content, and digital preservation systems can do it for publisher content as well. So let me run you through a quick example of what it looks like to integrate a digital preservation system with your OPAC and with your link resolver. What, I'm, what I have on the screen right now, and I apologize, it's a little small, but you, hopefully you can read this and you'll be able to look at the slides when they're available. Um, this is the SearchWorks OPAC that's available at Stanford University. And what I've done is I've entered the, the, a title that I'm interested in, in this case, The Economist's Voice. And I press Find. And what I find is there are several entries in the Stanford OPAC. Uh, and there's the Economist voice. So what I'll do is I will select that. And what it offers me is the ability to find that content online from a number of sources. This is where the link resolvers come in. What the link resolvers do is they integrate with the card catalog, the OPAC, I keep saying card catalog because that's what I'm used to, the OPAC at this point. And um, they provide a search dialog, and here's an example of that, that lets you enter 
bibliographic uh, specifications. So in this case, you could enter the year, the volume, the issue, the page from whatever citation you have for that content. And if you press search on that, what will happen? Because I, because I entered it in the target for the locks box at Stanford University, um, is it went to the locks box at Stanford and actually found that article. And there's the landing page for the article. And if I click on the uh, show me the PDF, there's the PDF file corresponding to that article, but not being served from the publisher. Instead, it's being served from the library's locks box. So this is an example of a way that you can make preserved digital content available to library users. The library users have a choice of selecting the publisher target from the OPAC or the locks target from the OPAC. If they select the publisher's target from the OPAC and the publisher is not available, they can go back and select the locks target. Or they could just decide to select the locks target from the start, knowing that that content is preserved in the library's locks box. It's their choice. So let me summarize here. Um, as far as ensuring long-term preservation of libraries' digital content, these are the high points I think that you should take away from this presentation. First of all, negotiate perpetual, that is to say owned access, versus term-based or rented licensing. Second, require support for your preferred digital preservation system in publisher contracts, whether that's a system like a hosted system like Portico or a local system like LOX. It's important that you specify that the publisher must provide support for at least one and hopefully several digital preservation systems. And certainly, if you've already evaluated one and you know which one that is, then negotiate that one. If you don't quite know which one, then make sure that they support several. Next, budget for long-term digital preservation. It's not free. You have to budget for it just like you would for shelf space, upkeep, and facilities for physical content. So switching from from physical books and journals to digital books and journals doesn't eliminate costs. It shifts costs to other areas and it may, in some cases, be cheaper. You'll have to analyze it for your library and find out. Next, evaluate the digital preservation risks when you select a digital preservation solution. Every digital preservation solution has a set of risks associated with. It's important that you evaluate what those risks are, understand what they are, and ask a lot of questions before you decide to go with a digital preservation solution. Picking a solution, finding you are wrong, and changing is a very, very time-consuming and sometimes a very expensive proposition. So it's important that you spend a lot of care and time selecting a digital preservation solution. What's the most important thing is that you do evaluate and that you do select one. Next, 
integrate your digital preservation system with other library and user-facing systems. Now, there's, there's a, a reason that I hadn't actually mentioned for doing this. If you have a digital preservation system, it's all too easy to ignore it because it's sort of like your fire sprinklers or your uninterruptible power supply. You, you only use them when you actually need them, and when you need them, it's too late. If you can integrate your digital preservation system with your other library systems, then if something happens to go wrong with your digital preservation system, um, temporarily becomes unavailable, stops working, has a glitch, it can happen. At least you'll get a really early warning from either your users or your library backend systems that something is wrong and you'll have a chance to rectify it. And finally, make digital content accessible to library users in as many ways as possible. Not only will it provide uninterrupted access to your preserved digital content, but if you evaluate and select uh, your digital preservation system carefully, you may find that there are other value-added benefits that can be provided by those systems um, in terms of value-added services that aren't being provided by the publishers. And as you start exposing the users and getting them used to interacting with those systems, it's very easy for you to start introducing new high-value-added services um, that go with that digital preservation system. So in today's presentation, I've talked about um, why digital preservation systems are important, what does it mean to preserve digital content, uh, paths to preservation, how much preservation costs, some threats that you need to consider to long-term digital preservation, um, how to make digital preserve digital content available to library users, and finally, ways that you can ensure long-term preservation for your library's digital content. I'd like to thank you for being with me this afternoon, and I'd be happy to take any questions now, but if you have any questions later, here's my email address, and I'd be happy to uh, answer email. Um, if you could put uh, digital preservation somewhere in the subject line so that I can more quickly pick out the title, then I'll be happy to get back to you. Thank you very much, and I'll be happy to take questions now. Great. Thank you, Phil. That was a great presentation uh, and very nicely done. If people do have uh, questions that they would like to ask uh, Phil now, uh, please um, do so. You can uh, raise your hand, get in the queue, and take the microphone. Uh, I just want to make a comment that, um, you know, early on in your presentation when you were talking about the uh, more commercial-oriented kinds of situations where if you um, stop paying, you lose all access to the content. And the first thought I had was what's going to happen with uh, numerous federal libraries by the end of this week, although I don't think uh, that money flow is going to stop that precipitously, but that's a situation where, you know, it's, it's unanticipated and they could lose all their content because of, of this budget situation. You're, you're absolutely right. That's possible. If the libraries have to shut down, um, then the question is, will their IT system shut down before? What you perhaps don't know is that there are actually two federal depository systems running in parallel. 
One is a print-based one, and there are depository libraries all over the country that have uh, content. Not all, of the, all libraries have all content. The second one is an online federal depository system that is actually being run using LOCKS technology by the depository libraries. And James Jacobs at Stanford is one of the leaders in that area. And if the libraries can manage to keep their IT systems up, then access to those uh, online federal depository systems is going to remain. Um, the question is, will they be able to keep the IT systems up and running during that period of time? But even if they don't, um, the some of the libraries may remain online, and since all of the libraries, it's easier for all of the libraries to have all of the content, then even if a few of the libraries are um, open for business, um, then it's, it's highly likely that you'll be able to get the content from the local locks box, even if you can't get it from the original source. As I indicated uh, earlier that um, the, um, Recording will will have some immediate. You can access the recording right away, but we will also do some post processing of the recording, and it will be up on YouTube in about a week or so. And if and uh, have a, a great rest of the day.